I'd love you to take your seats again. And uh, if you have a chance just to grab a Bible from your chairs or just uh, from the little bookcase, uh, do do that. We're, we're in Ezekiel chapter 33 tonight, so um, if you'd like to pull that up uh, on your device or, or in the Bible, if you can get hold of a hard copy. And uh, we're going to be reading just a, a short account here from uh, verse 7, and we're going to go through to the end of verse 11. Son of man, I've made your watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I'll hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will be saved yourself. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you're saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Wow, okay, there we go. That's it, that's the end of the reading. Um, feel good about everything. Uh, um, no. Uh, it, look, this is challenging. Uh, Ezekiel is really challenging uh, as a text to share. And, and, you know, there's a real danger in the church that we stay away from the Old Testament because it kind of, it seems heavy. You know, it feels judgmental. But often that's because we've misunderstood what judgmental actually means. You know, judgment is not an attitude, it's a gift. When we say, oh, it's judgmental, what we're really doing is we're distorting the gift. We treat it like an object, it's an offense to us. Oh, you're really judgmental. But God's judgmentalism wasn't actually judgmentalism at all, it was judgment. It was meant to enable you to understand what the judge was thinking. Like when the judge in the court offers his judgment, it's not that he has particular animosity towards the criminal. He doesn't say, I'm really going to get you. Right, what can I say that's going to really hurt this guy? He's not doing it like that. He's no, he's no, he's no design to hurt the criminal. Merely he's offering a judgment because he's demonstrating what it means to reflect the law and apply it in this circumstance. And so we've misunderstood the nature of the Old Testament when we lean back and say, oh, it's very judgmental. Actually, what we need to be thinking about is God, who is the righteous judge in heaven, offering us an interpretation of his holy law for the way in which we might live well. It's a gift. It transforms our life. And here's Ezekiel, the prophet, and he is bringing, if you like, the interpretation of the law on God's behalf to the people. He's trying to offer them some solace in a difficult time. And if you have a look there uh, to um, the reflective verse in, in, in verse 10, son of man, say to the house of Israel, now careful how you read this, actually it says, this is what you are saying. This isn't actually what God is saying. This is the, the truth that the Lord has heard the prayers of the people. God is saying, oh, I've heard you say to me in prayer, our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? This is the question of the house, the question of the people to God in prayer. And the Lord's saying, you're saying to me, my sins, my offenses are weighing me down and I'm wasting away because of them. How can I live, Lord? Well, I'm going to tell you through the prophet. I'm going to tell you how you're going to live. 
how you can live well because I'm bringing my judgment. I'm not bringing my judgmentalism. I'm bringing my judgment to show you how to live in line with the law. Recently, just last month, for the first time in my life, I was read my Miranda rights. Um, I was confronted by a man in uniform who was carrying a baton and handcuffs. Um, I've got your attention right now, haven't I? <laughs> just want to be really clear, this isn't the moment at which I'm resigning from ministry in the Church of England. <laughs> so, uh, here I was, fly fishing, with two of my really close Christian friends. And it was the first time we were out for the first day of the new season, and we hadn't fished together since the September previously. And in that time, I'd also, uh, we'd moved house, and uh, my fishing license hadn't arrived at my new address. And we were there on a private lake in Hampshire, gonna have a lovely day with the chaps, relaxing in the sunshine, catching a few fish, super chilled, it's a day to be restored. A day away from work and study and, and, and leadership. Ah, I'm really looking forward to this day. And then at about five past nine, just when we got going, and I was just thinking about catching that first trout, a big green truck kind of drove into the forecourt of the private trout lake that we were fishing on, and two mini Arnold Schwarzeneggers jumped out of the van wearing wraparound silver sunglasses and body armor and approached the fisherman next to me. And I thought, oh goodness, what's he done? Uh, and then they finished talking to him, and then the one chap ran over and said to me, can I see your fishing license, please? And at that moment, something stirred within me. And I thought, ooh, my fishing license. I'm not sure I've renewed my fishing license for this year. So I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I've got a feeling I haven't renewed my fishing license. And I'm thinking, I'm sure I'm going to be able to talk my way out of this. Uh, Acknowledge guilt immediately. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, let, me, let me renew it now online. Oh, that would be a very good thing to do, sir. So I immediately renewed my fishing license online by the bank side. I'm really sorry about this. I mean, I've bought a fishing license every year, year on year, for more than 30 years. I've never, ever met a fishing bailiff in my entire fishing life. And here are two. He said to me, of course, this is a criminal offence. And uh, you could be subject to a fine of up to 2,500 pounds. I'm thinking, I'm going to try really hard not to get that fine. Trying to explain that to my wife is going to be really difficult and probably much worse than the magistrate. But it's going to go to the magistrate's court and you could receive a criminal record as a result. I'm thinking this is really a bad day's fishing. Anyway, I was read my rights and... Uh, and having me read my rights, I suddenly thought about my two Christian brothers who were on another lake slightly further up. I thought, I'd better run around and raise the alarm, lest I might be able to rescue one of my other brothers from the same fate. Unfortunately, I was too late, and mini Arnold Schwarzenegger had already approached both of them, one of whom had done exactly the same as I had, and was also protesting on the side of the lake, also wondering whether he might be able to get away from crime and punishment. Anyway... It wasn't a very relaxing days fishing as we imagined what could be happening next. And I was busy Googling what happens when you get a criminal record from not uh, fulfilling your fishing license obligations. And I read a particularly distressing story, no doubt in the Daily Mail, about a headmaster who now had a criminal record on his DBS when his enhanced DBS came through for safeguarding sake. And his school were wondering whether they were going to renew his contract or not. So I was thinking, wow, I could really lose my job right now as a result. I want to put you all out of your agony. 
agony because the environment agency kindly wrote to me and said that they checked out my previous purchasing record, acknowledged that I'd made an error, gave me a firm warning, but desisted from taking any further action. I know, it's a good story. The thing is, God sent the prophets not to pat law-abiding citizens on the back, but to keep the fishers of men on track. Here I was, I've bought a fishing license for 30 years, I don't think I've ever let it lapse before, but the one time I let my fishing license lapse by a couple of months, a couple of these EA enforcement officers appeared in my world. Ain't that the truth? We can become lax. We can let things slide in the Christian life. Uh, We can forget of the way we're called to live. And then things start going wrong. But, but we become so accustomed to just kind of getting on and getting on that we fail to recognize there is a correlation between receiving the judgment and living well. And actually, this is what had happened to the people of Israel. Everything started to go wrong. Uh, the Babylonian Empire rising in power, and then the Babylonians came and they actually uh, took Jerusalem during this period. And suddenly, Jerusalem, which was the, the heart of the Jewish understanding of where God dwelt in the temple, has suddenly in foreign hands. It was, it was an abomination. It, it, was a, it, it was the desecration of the, the heart of worship. Now, uh, Ezekiel and all the sort of intelligent uh, young men and women of the period have been taken into Babylon to be trained in the ways of the Babylonians, to, if you like, be deculturated and reculturated with a new narrative. Uh, Everyone was feeling devastated socially, economically, spiritually, and politically. Ezekiel was there to say, "Um, I think there's a correlation between the way we were living and now what we are experiencing. There's a correlation between what's going on in our world and how we've been living in relationship with God. And this is one of the great challenges that Christians experience today because we're New Testament people and we believe that Christ has taken uh, the punishment that we deserved on himself. There is no punishment, we believe, for those who are now in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to be really clear. Uh, The scripture actually says there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. But it still says that the wages of sin is death and the gift of life is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So we know that, if you like, the eternal reality of ours is that we are now hid in Christ, but sin still has consequences in the real world. Brokenness still has real-life consequences in the real world, and when uh, the world goes off track from God, then we see real-life consequences in in what happens in our world. Uh, And we live in a world today where there are real-life consequences for us living aside from the judgment of God. Now, I'm not, uh, I have to be careful about making this sort of very directive interpretation from all the things that you're bringing to mind right now. But, but, but the actual active behavior of Vladimir Putin, who we prayed about earlier, clearly is in contravention to the judgment of God in how we treat one another. Now, when evil men rise up, we see we see their judgment, if you like, by the outworking of their own deeds. Their deeds, if you like, are a demonstration of the way in which we are separate from God. And, and Ezekiel's amongst a group of people who, who ostensibly are trying to get back on track with God. And he's there to say, this is how we do it. This is how we are going to do this thing. Why do wicked men prosper? Well, 
you know, the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying, you know, they just do in this broken and fallen world. Our consideration is not to transform them, but to be transformed in ourselves, to be, if you like, keepers of the light. And I want to encourage you on this idea today about being a keeper of the light. God sent the prophets because God speaking was the most important thing in the universe. Again, when we think about judgment, we interpret it negatively and assume that someone's got it in for us. But, but the Israelites didn't assume that God had got it in for them because he was speaking. The Israelites delighted in the judgment of God because it demonstrated the presence of God. Now, I want to encourage you all as a congregation tonight not to, if you like, shy away from the call to be keepers of the light and therefore also to receive rebuke and challenge. Because it seems to me that gift is a sign of God's presence with you and the silence of God is something that's far more terrifying. Remember, God spoke creation into being. He's described as the logos, the word. Words matter because God is the word. And the people of Israel accounted their fortunes entirely on the voice of God. You know, the times of greatest terror were the times when God himself was silent. I was quite a naughty little boy, I'm sure you can imagine that. And, uh, and, 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 and I, I, I got into trouble quite a lot. And I've got, I come from a quite an outspoken Dutch family. And so as long as people are shouting, everything is good. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're shouting at you, everything is good because you know that they love you. We just raise our voices in our family. I always knew that I was loved and safe even when I got into trouble because my mum and dad were brilliant at expressing themselves and they needed to express themselves to me. But I felt the rebuke and that made me feel loved and safe even if I knew that I was in trouble. Now, the rare times that they went silent, I knew I'd crossed a line. <laughs> there was that feeling of like, okay, I've really done it this time. You know, silence is dangerous. Silence is malign. And for the Israelites, the silence of God was something to be feared. You know, the gap between the New and Old Testament is a terrifying time for the people. Biblically, we think, oh, not much happened in 400 years. You know, not much happened while God was silent. Not much happened for the people in, the, in, in, in slavery, you know, for, for this great period of time. Nothing happened, uh, you know, because God was silent. No, when God was silent, it was a period of terror for the people, longing for the voice of the prophets to bring the judgment of God, which was the sign, actually, that God could bring them back because judgment said things can get better and God is on your side. Nothing's more terrifying than a sense that God is absent. God isn't with you. God isn't challenging you. God isn't transforming you. Remember in Hebrews 12, 6, it says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. I remember uh, getting lost in the marketplace when I was really young. It's one of those really early memories you have of like, I think I fell asleep on that greengrocer's grass. You know, I put my head on it at some point or other. I was quite small. Um, and, and I kind of, I must have closed my eyes or got stuck there. And, and my mum wandered off trying to do the shopping. Obviously, she thought I was right next to her. And, and there was a moment, it's probably only five minutes, but there was a moment of extreme terror, both on my side and on her side. And, and I remember that. It's one of those really strange things in my mind that you, I still remember her crying and shouting at the same time and, and, and kind of running into her arms and it being the most beautiful sound. You know, the tears, and also, where did you go? 
that sort of embrace of like, I, I'm, I've lost you. And I'm also angry with you for going away, but I, I just want to be close to you again. God's, God's judgment is his tears, his lament, and also his wrath. You know, where did you go? Why have you been separated from me for so long? I want to be united with you again. And so in that is this reality, this truth that God takes no pleasure in our suffering. Look with me at verse 11. Say to them, as surely I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That's the truth right there. You know, when God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, we've got to hear that. Because again, a parody in our generation is that God is some malevolent force in the universe who sort of delights in people getting it wrong. Uh, there's a kind of line that keeps on moving this way and people are falling into the fiery bowels of hell and God's kind of rubbing his hands together going, ah, another one bites the dust. You know, that's the parody that people want to paint of God, but God sent Jesus in order that we might be saved. You know, he made the ultimate sacrifice. He paid the ultimate price because he's a God of ultimate love. You know, a great danger in our church today is that we are so transactional, we kind of get in and then we think, all right, I'm done. But, but actually, we shouldn't just be transactional, we should be transformational. The, the, the church is not just about kind of getting your card stamped and then going, okay, I could see, keep the seat warm for the next 40 years and then I'm going to stroll into heaven. It's about getting your card stamped and then beginning the work of transformation for the glory of God. You know, th this is the Christian journey you sign up for. The transaction was the transaction of God through Christ for our sake. But once we've received the forgiveness of God, we begin the transformational journey with God himself. The people of Israel were not, not the people of Israel when they were in exile. It wasn't like God said, oh yeah, okay, you messed up. You're not one of me anymore. I've left you, not my son. You're not my daughter. The people of Israel were still the children of God. But they had to work out what has gone wrong and why has it gone wrong and how can I get back on track? You know, if your life is looking off beam right now, you know, it, it, again, this is a theological dichotomy that I'm kind of walking a line on. You can say, well, you know, it's got nothing to do with the, the judgment of the Lord. No, because the judgment of the Lord is, is, is assaged in Christ. But is it consequence of sin? It could well be. You know, I, I, I knew Christ as a young man, but I was not living for Christ as a young man. Now, the, the, the ramifications of my life were still ramifications of my life. They weren't, I wasn't inoculated against pain, and I didn't, God didn't inoculate people I hurt against the pain that I caused because I was a Christian or because I had made a transactional agreement in faith. The consequence of the pain I received and the pain I caused, a reality, because sin hurts. Now, you can't say, well, I'm in, so I'm in, so this is all good. <laughs> I'll live my way. You can only say, I'm in, and now I need to live in. And, and Ezekiel's calling the people to say, well, you're in, but now start to live in. And there's an appointment here to the watchman specifically to say, actually, we've got a responsibility not just to ourselves to live well, but to hold one another to account in the living well. Think about it like this. You know, if you become a part of a family, you have a responsibility for the well-being of the whole family. 
Some of you, who has got siblings younger than them? A significant number of you, okay. So, you know, there would have been a time, no doubt, when you were younger, when there was an expectation for you to bring your brothers and sisters into line. Uh, I've got three children, and um, we're quite careful about dishing out kind of too much responsibility too soon. But my daughter is brilliant, and uh, my sons are also brilliant, if they're listening to this live stream. Um, <laughs> Well, my daughter is brilliant, and, and she's actually increasingly responsible. And me and my wife can go and walk the dog, and we'll say, we're just taking the dog out for a walk. You're in charge. You know, keep an eye, especially on number three. <laughs> and, uh, and she'll keep an eye, and she'll help them stay in line. Now, we, when we come back, you know, it's good. Things are good. Because actually, she carries her responsibility as our daughter, but also as a watchman for our family. Now, you are all children of God, and there will be those who are spiritually less mature than you. And you have a responsibility to be a watchman or a watchwoman for them in order that they might live well. Your accountability to the family of God is in order that we all live well. So within our church family, we are watchmen and watchwomen for one another. This is one of the things that Brits find particularly difficult. Like saying anything to anyone that might be deemed as offense or judgmentalism. You know, I, I saw you out the other night, you seemed completely wasted, um, and that made me slightly worried for you and for your Christian witness. Could we talk about it? You know, what's been going on for you? Is that judgmentalism, or is, is it judgment? You know, I, I was one of those young men for quite a significant amount of time, and, and very prickly to judgment, very quick to say, oh, it's all grace, my friend, you know, take it easy, at least I'm in the church, at least I keep the seats warm, you know, I'll defend my position. My friend Dan Brown, who was a missionary in Afghanistan for 11 years at the height of the sort of Afghan conflict, shows you how hardcore he is, uh, he, he, he wasn't willing to allow me to live as one who had transactional faith. He longed to see me express transformational faith. And when I first turned up post-university in, in the town that I, I moved to, he spotted me. And he said, um, he said to me at church, he said, oh, why didn't you pop round during the week? I said, oh, I'm really busy. He said, no, no, it's fine. It's good. What, what are you doing in the week? Well, I'm really busy, kind of. You know, what, what do you do? Well, go to the gym. <laughs> He's like, well, well, why don't you um, pop by on your way back from the gym? I was like, yeah, yeah maybe. He said, I've got pasta. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. I'll pop round. So, you know, I'd go to the gym and then pop round his house for pasta or eat whatever he happened to have, because I was always eating stuff. So whatever he happened to have that available, uh, and I would pop round. And this went on for a little while, and he would sort of say, how's it going? You know, and he'd, he'd look out for me. Uh, and then he'd say, oh, you know, you, you around this week? I'd be like, yeah, busy, busy. I'd go to the gym. Well, why don't you pop round before the gym? It just happened to be there would be an African prayer meeting going on in his house. And then suddenly I'd be like... I can't really leave this without causing offense. And then suddenly wrapped up in prayer and deliverance. And other people laying hands on me saying, Lord, would you, you know, bring your prodigal son home? Thinking, hold on a minute, I'm not a prodigal son. You know, I've got it sorted out. It's all right, I'm in, I'm in. And gradually, 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 accountability, judgment, not judgmentalism. Suddenly, gradually, behaviors, attitudes falling away. Seeing actually the way I'm living matters. The way I'm loving others matters. The way I'm treating people matters. The attitudes of my heart matter. I wasn't a lighthouse. I was living with my light under a jar. 
but, but through the accountability, through the brotherhood, through the stewardship, through the watchman, I am transformed. And then I, in my turn, seek to transform others in Jesus' name. Now, the church is sleeping in the West because we're so busy being careful not to cause offense. We're so busy making sure that we don't upset one another with challenge. And yet the church in the East, the persecuted church, is calling one another to greater life, just like Ezekiel. Guys, you know, at this time, how are we going to live? We can't live in this soft way. We can't live unwintered. We have to live with an edge. We have to live distinctively. We have to be called to greater things. We're part of a priesthood, and the watchmen are watchmen for one another in the church, but we're all watchmen for the world. You know, the watchman carries a responsibility. You know, here in the text, it says that, that if, if the people sin and the watchmen pass on a warning, the people die of their own account. If the watchman has made the warning. The watchman will be saved, but if the watchman fails to offer a warning and the people sin and the people die under judgment, the blood of the people is on the hands of the watchman. Wow, that's a heavy responsibility. But think about that for a minute. Now, we know that our lives are hidden in Christ. We know that our legacy and our inheritance is an eternal one. But let's not discount the Old Testament for a moment and think, well, this doesn't then apply to us in any way. Yes, we are not lost because we are children of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, but our responsibility to be watchmen for the world still matters. Now, we have to make account of the case for Christ because we have a responsibility in order that the people might not be lost. You know, if the church says nothing and the people die and say, well, I didn't know, who's at fault, the church or the people? Now, I know this is hard to receive, and I don't want you to feel, again, judgmentalism, but here the judgment of God is actually the purpose of the church is to be the place of sanctuary for the believer in order that we might be empowered to deliver the message of Jesus to the broken and hurting world. The experience of the New Testament church was not that this became a cozy club where we all got to avoid judgment, but actually that this was a radical movement of people who faced danger, nakedness, famine, sword, oppression, humiliation in the public square because they were making the case for Jesus Christ known to a group of people who were directly hostile to them. And I want to say prophetically, I believe a time is coming when we'll face the same hardship. Are we ready? Are we ready to face hardship in the Western church? To carry the burden of what it means to be watchmen and watchwomen? Are we choosing to live distinctively in a way that, that radically challenges the culture that says, do what you want, you do you? You know, Jeremiah didn't get in trouble for saying, you do you. John the Baptist didn't say, yeah, take it easy, all is well. You know, uh, Ezekiel didn't go, yeah, no, it's fine, just do it your way and I'll do it mine. You know, these people brought distinctive challenge. They got in trouble for saying what other people weren't willing to say. Now, if you're new to faith tonight, this might be a bit overwhelming and think, oh, flip, I don't know what I've signed up to. But I want to reassure you and say, look, you know, ultimately, 
the call is to be children of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all grace. But when we become part of a family, we have a responsibility to share the story of our family. I had a, a terrible party for my 18th birthday that got completely out of control. Praise God the police didn't turn up, but um, my parents did, and that was nearly as bad. Um, and, um, and, and, and things got broken. And um, I, remember, I, remember just, I remember the party going really badly for me because as, as exciting as the party was for many of the party-goers, some of them hadn't really been invited properly, um, the excitement of being in someone else's home with a lot of beer and loud music and my excitement about things that my mum and dad owned getting broken definitely dissected. And so I found myself not enjoying my own party, but going around my house telling people to behave and trying to put things back that might be getting broken. And my parents were so loving and gracious about the whole thing, they hardly ever talk about it. If they're listening, hi, mum and dad, sorry. <laughs> but they, they were so gracious about it all. They don't really ever talk about it, but there's sometimes this sort of your party, kind of very occasionally. But it's one of those family things we've tried to, like, we've eradicated. But, you know, what's interesting to me was I didn't go around my parents' house saying, please don't break anything because those were the rules. I went around my parents' house saying, please don't break anything because I love my parents. And I longed for people to respect them and their space. We don't call people to live according to the rule of the Lord because we want to keep the rules we call people to live according to the rule of the Lord because we love the Lord. This is the Lord's house. Now, I want you to be motivated by grace and love, not motivated by legalism. I want a church that's so filled with love and, and, and hunger and passion for Jesus that it's attractive in its own sake. A church that's so far away from judgmentalism, it couldn't get any less judgmental, but it couldn't get any more judgment. You know, I want a group of people here to be so distinctively in love with Jesus that people know that you're protecting them from the bad things of life. That they say, thank you for showing me the way. I knew I wanted to walk this way. I knew I wanted to walk in it. And so we extend the kingdom of God together. You know, one of the most amazing things that Ezekiel did was he was a precursor to Christ in that he showed the people that the, the temple and the order and the geographic nature of faith was not to be beheld. It wasn't something which would endure. That actually you could live distinctively for Jesus in Babylon. You know, everyone was longing to get back to the temple because they thought that's where God was. But Ezekiel showed the people that God was with you wherever you are. Now, we need to know that God isn't specifically and distinctively here in this church tonight any more than he is over at the White Horse Pub after the church tonight, because ultimately God is in you. Now, God has made his dwelling place the temple of your own heart, and therefore how you live and where you live and what you say matter because the temple always goes with you. Ezekiel was saying, I want to call you into temple worship in Babylon. Babylon was the heart of depravity in the ancient Near East. It was, if you like, the, the place that was most distinctively removed from what it meant to be a temple worshipper. And yet Ezekiel is saying, let's build our temple here, friends. Let's be distinctive about what it is to live for Christ.
How can we live, they were asking. The prophet was saying, turn, turn away from your ways. Turn, turn and live. Why don't we stand together? Just in the silence, why don't you open your hands and close your eyes, hear what the prophet is saying to the church. Examine me, O Lord. See if there's any offensive way within me. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you come and rest on every single person tonight longing to turn to make your ways their ways, to make your thoughts their thoughts. Come Holy Spirit, we long to live as watchmen, watch women for the kingdom of God. Come, Holy Spirit, call us, affirm us as your children, rooted in you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but called not just to transactional faith, called to transformational faith in your name. Let's invite you to keep doing business with God. We're going to make some space just on the side if you just feel like there's something you want prayer for if you want to confess something if you want to like speak something out there's gonna be a few of us there to pray and in this last few moments as we worship I just encourage you to do business with God you might want to sit you might want to stand you might want to kneel you might want to lie prostrate on the floor but whatever the Lord is calling you to make that commitment right now